I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about amicus briefs, upcoming cases, and we'll interview Adam Liptak from the New York Times. Welcome to season two of SCOTUS 101. The leaves are starting to turn, kids are back in school, and store shelves are brimming with pumpkin spice products. That can only mean one thing. The Supreme Court will be back in session soon. October 2nd is the first day of oral argument. The court has already agreed to hear 33 cases so far, and it will add more after it holds its long conference on September 25th. This will be Justice Gorsuch's first long conference, where he will take over the duties of the junior justice, such as answering the door, to get forgotten items or coffee. This is good news for Justice Kagan, who's had the job since 2010. It's a a little bit of hazing over at the Supreme Court. So here are a few of the cases that they've already agreed to hear this term. There's Gill v. Whitford. This is a challenge to political gerrymandering in Wisconsin. The travel ban case, which has gone back and forth between the lower courts and SCOTUS a few times since they granted the case in June. Then there's Houston v. uh, the A. Philip Randolph Institute, which is Ohio's voter cleanup challenge. Masterpiece Cake Shop, which is a baker's refusal to make a custom cake for a gay wedding. And... NAM v. DOD, which has it's a jurisdictional challenge that will decide what court has jurisdiction to hear a challenge to the waters of the United States. And then there's Carpenter versus United States. This involves police seizure of cell phone location records, and there are many more. But we're pleased to have with us today Adam Liptak. He covers the Supreme Court for the New York Times and also writes Sidebar, which is a column on legal developments. Adam, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Oh, it's so nice to be here. So tell us, how do you typically prepare for the start of a new term? There's really no better way to prepare than to read the briefs. Uh, People focus on oral arguments, they talk to experts, they go to conferences, but the quality of the written advocacy at the Supreme Court is really where the bulk of the work gets done. The justices will tell you that, and I'll tell you the same thing. And these days, although there are lots of amicus briefs and sometimes they're instructive, The main briefs, uh, the party briefs and the Solicitor General briefs, if you read them with care, you will be in good shape uh, to start writing about the court. So how did you get such a primo spot in the press section of the court? And is it assigned seating? It's generally not assigned seating. There may be 25 of us who have so-called hard passes, which allow us into those front two church pews to the left side of the court as you face the court. And basically everybody who gets there gets a seat and we sort of arrange among ourselves where to sit on very big cases. And this term, there will be quite a few of them. We do have assigned seats and we have assigned seats in the first sitting on October 3rd in the political gerrymandering case, Gill against Whitford, and on October 10th in the travel ban case. So there we are told where to sit and the court has been generally nice enough to put me sort of in the front, in the middle. So you spend a lot of time inside the courtroom watching the justices. Have there been any cases where you've been surprised by the court's decision based on what you observed during oral argument? Would you say you can typically tell how a case is going to turn out? So let me answer the second question first. If you cover the court long enough, you have a pretty good sense of the justices' prior legal commitments, the things they already know they know. And you add to that the questioning in the case And you add to that the fact that they are rather more likely to vote for the petitioner than the respondent as a general matter. And you add to that uh, the very good indicia of which side is going to win, because if you get more questions, you're more likely to lose. You take that stew of information, and then you add to that the fact that they're not really playing devil's advocate when they ask questions. They really are telling you what they think. Most of the time, 
you should, if you're any good at this job, you should have a pretty good sense of where they're going. The one problem with this is that the justice who's hardest to read is Justice Kennedy. So the most important justice, the most decisive justice, is capable of asking hostile questions to both sides, and that can sometimes leave you scratching your head. Now, to go back to your first question, I can think of two cases for sure where I was fairly confident the court would go the other way. The first one was the first Affordable Care Act case, the NFIB case. It seemed to me that the Obama administration was going to lose, and I turned out to be wrong about that. I don't think I was alone in being surprised. Not everyone predicted the chief justice's Certainly vote. Certainly not. <laughs> and then the second case was the second version of the Fisher affirmative action case, where judging from Justice Kennedy's earlier decisions, never having voted to uphold an affirmative action program ever, and judging from his questioning at both arguments, I really didn't think that he was going to switch sides, as it were. And I was profoundly surprised by how that case came out. Those are the two that come to mind. A few years ago, you wrote about a study looking at which justices were the funniest, who cracked jokes during oral argument, and who elicited the most laughs in the courtroom. Justice Scalia, as uh, many of our listeners will know, was the reigning joker for many years. Has anybody filled this role since his passing? Who is the funniest justice now? Well, using those measures that developed by uh, Jay Wexler, the funniest justice now is Justice Breyer. But you may have some methodological quibbles with Wexler's methodology. It simply notes when the transcript of the oral argument in brackets has the word laughter. It doesn't pick up every instance of laughter, and it doesn't distinguish between various kinds of laughter. There's sort of invited laughter, generous laughter. There's laughing at rather than laughing with. Like when his cell phone went off in court. For instance, that might generate laughter, but I'm not sure he should be credited with that laughter. Uh, in terms of actual wit, you know, which requires human judgment rather than just counting laughter notations, I would say there are two really quick justices on the court. Justice Kagan, for sure, and Chief Justice Roberts, who's got a very sly wit, although he has to play air traffic control, so he can't always ask the questions and make the comments that he's that he'd like to make. And then you wouldn't know it from his, um, you know, sometimes grim demeanor, but Justice Alito is a very witty man, too. <laughs> so what do you think will be the most important decisions coming out of this term? And are there any under-the-radar cases that should be getting more attention? I think most of the cases that are big are, are on our radar, and it kind of depends how deep your radar goes. I'd say the big three are partisan gerrymandering, travel ban, and masterpiece cake shop, the question of whether a, a Colorado baker can deny making a custom cake for a same-sex couple. And then not far behind, uh, Carpenter, a case about whether prosecutors need a warrant to obtain historical cell phone data held, held by your cell phone company. And then not far behind that, cases on whether corporations can be sued for complicity in human rights abuses abroad and on whether workers can be stopped from banding together to take legal action over workplace issues based on arbitration clauses in employment contracts. So one takeaway from all of this is that it's a really good term. I mean, if you could rattle off six or seven cases like that, that's pretty good. So you wrote an article over the summer talking about when the federal government changes its legal positions. Uh, you mentioned a few cases where the justices seemed irritated with the Obama administration for doing this. So can you tell us about some of the cases where the Trump administration has changed course and how the justices might respond to that? So the Trump administration has reversed positions in pending cases 
about the meanings of statutes in two cases. And that doesn't happen every day. And while the Obama administration got in some trouble at oral arguments, it doesn't specifically map onto what I just talked about. They, they'd reversed legal positions, but not in a pending case. So I think this may get the attention of the justices. But I have to credit the Trump administration with a kind of candor that maybe the Obama administration wasn't quite as blunt about. So the chief justice in questioning an Obama administration lawyer was upset when the brief just said something like, upon further consideration, we changed our mind. And the new briefs from the Trump administration used the much blunter formulation, something like, upon the change of administration, we changed (laughs) our mind. The two cases are the workplace arbitration case that I just mentioned a second ago, where the National Labor Relations Board, represented by the Obama Solicitor General, took one position, and now the Solicitor General's office in the Trump administration takes opposite position. You'll be surprised to hear that the Obama administration was on the workers' side and the Trump administration was on the employer's side. And the second involves a somewhat tangled pair of statutes in Husted, the question of what, how far can Ohio go in culling voters from its voter registration rolls based on earlier failure to vote. So the, and there, too, you probably don't need to guess who was on which side. So uh, the court's going to add some more cases to its schedule pretty soon following the long conference. Do you have any predictions about what issues the justices might tackle? Perhaps Texas redistricting be a challenge to one of the deference doctrines, a Second Amendment case? All of those are possible. I think very likely they take another run at the issue left open in Friedrichs when they split 4-4 about whether people who choose not to join public sector unions can be compelled to pay agency fees for collective bargaining activities. I think that case, Janice, quite quite likely to be granted, and I, I'm pretty sure that's on the long conference, so we may hear about that quite soon. Another case that I think the court will be quite interested in is an issue upon which the circuits have split about whether Title VII, which forbids sex discrimination in employment, applies to sexual orientation discrimination not identified in those words, but the Seventh Circuit said identified as a practical matter. Do you see our newest justice, Neil Gorsuch, staking out any turf this term? Judging by the single sitting in which he participated, the April sitting of the last term, he is not a shy and retiring justice, has lots and lots of ideas, is ready to go, and has made an alliance with the most conservative members of the court, Justices Alito and Thomas, and has found occasions to voice opinions where it was completely discretionary. He decided he had things to say, and he did them in separate opinions. One way to judge just how active Justice Gorsuch is is that he wrote between April and June as many separate opinions as the next most junior justice, Justice Kagan, wrote in her first two terms. So one final question. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, I'm not sure what we talk about, but I think it would have to be Chief Justice John Marshall because he was famous for liking to have conversations over his private reserve of Madeira wine. <laughs> and that sounds like it would be nice. <laughs> 
so next we're going to talk about the role of amicus briefs and the role they play at the court. So amicus means friend of the court, and amici are individuals or groups that have an interest in the case but aren't a party to the case. Amicus briefs generally flag a case for the court to say, hey, this is really important and will have effects beyond just the parties. So apparently the first case in the United States to have an amicus brief was Green v. Biddle in 1821, in which Henry Clay, who hails from my home state of Kentucky and isn't responsible for introducing the mint julep to Washington, uh, he filed a brief in that case. In the 2015-2016 term, amicus briefs were filed in more than 90% of the cases that the court heard. They totaled over 860 briefs that term, which is an 800% increase from the 1950s. And this is going to be a big term for amici as well. Every case granted up to this point has at least one amicus brief filed in it, except for the case that was most recently granted because the briefs aren't due yet. But just to give some of the lay of the land, there were 29 briefs filed in NLRB v. Murphy Oil, which is an arbitration agreements case, 29 briefs in the travel ban case, 31 briefs in Oil States Energy Services against Green's Energy Group, which is a case involving the review of patents, 48 briefs in Gill v. Whitford, which is the Wisconsin partisan gerrymandering case, 49 briefs so far in Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, and that's only the briefs filed on behalf of petitioner. The briefs for respondents have not yet been filed. So I think we can expect a lot of amicus briefs in in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. So uh, Bloomberg News has a series called Tipping the Scales in which Zachary Miter looks at the influence of amici. The first article is called Friends of the Court Have Hidden Ties to Big Investors. Now, this has nothing to do with the substance of the series, but in one of the articles, Miter mentions that Chuck Cooper, who's a conservative litigator in D.C., gives all of his partners a broadsword and that their motto at the firm is victory or death, which I think is a reference to the Battle of the Alamo. Um, So that's a friend of the court that I think I'd like to have. (laughs) So we're going to wrap up with a game with our guest, Adam Liptak. It's called Judge or Just Made Up, where we're going (laughs) to read a list of six judges' names, and our guest will tell us if they're real judges or just made up. Okay. First one, Augustus Noble Hand. Yeah, Learned Hand's brother. Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Actual judge. Samuel Tarley. Never heard it. I'm going to say no. Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar II. If that's made up, it's very creative. Uh, Melville Fuller. Definitely a real person. I'm going to say a judge, although maybe an academic. Armistead Doby. Oh, I'm in equipoise on this one. I'm going to say made up. Okay, so of the list, there were five judges, real judges, and one made up. So we had Augustus Noblehand. Judge. Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Judge. Samuel Tarley. Don't know. Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar II. Okay. Melville Fuller and Armistead Doby. Oh, maybe the really elaborate Lucius one. (laughs) Actually, he was a Supreme Court justice and colonel in the Confederate Army. And in fact, Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar Sr. was a (laughs) Georgia Supreme Court justice. The fake judge is Samuel Tarley, who is (laughs) a member of the Night's Watch, friend of Jon Snow, who knows nothing on Game of Thrones. But you did a great job. These are some pretty obscure, obscure judges. As you mentioned, Augustus Noble Hand is a relative of Learned Hand, a very famous judge. Kennesaw Mountain Landis was a district court judge and the first commissioner of baseball. He is famous for handling the Black Sox scandal following the 1919 World Series. Melville Fuller was the eighth chief justice appointed by President Cleveland. And Armistead Doby was a district court judge appointed by FDR. And this was after the Virginia senators had objected to his first nominee for that judgeship, which is uh, something we might 
see going on today with some of President Trump's nominees. So great job, Adam. Thanks for being on SCOTUS 101. Hey, thanks for having me. So thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, and please leave us a review if you enjoy listening. And please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.